Good morning, Alpharetta Church. I, I'm praying that your Easter plans weren't decimated by this uh, social distancing guidelines. I know that I was talking to my grandmother yesterday, and she was, uh, she was so frustrated. She always uh, gets a huge turkey. She invites so many friends and family over. We sit outside. There's often such a, a nice breeze. The weather's not too terrible, and we just hang out all afternoon after church on Sabbath. And I know that when I was talking to her, she was so frustrated because her plans have uh, have essentially changed, as so many of our plans have changed because of this ongoing coronavirus. And so I'm praying that no matter what you had on the calendar, no matter what you had scheduled, that this Easter isn't one that we look back on and say, oh man, that Easter, yeah, that was... You know, that, that wasn't the best Easter, but in fact, it's the opposite, that we look back on Easter 2020 when the whole world, in an unprecedented manner, was shut down because of this pandemic. We look back and we say, man, that was a time where we grew in our relationship with Jesus. I think of this uh, line from the, my favorite hockey coach of all time. You see, his name is Herb Brooks, and he was the uh, coach of the United States Olympic team in 1980. You see, he had coached this group, this ragtag bunch of hockey players from Minnesota, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, and he had put these collegiates together, and they made up the Olympic team. And as he's there, standing before his team in the locker room, the look of nervousness around his players' faces, because their opponent is the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had not lost an Olympic game in four consecutive Olympics. That's 16 years. They were undefeated. They had wrecked the United States Olympic team prior uh, to, to this match. They had wrecked the NHL All-Stars by a considerable margin. And here is this group of collegians that have come together as a team that are about to face the best team in the world. And Herb Brooks takes the opportunity to share this line. He says, great moments are born from great opportunities. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to create a lasting moment where we look back and we say, God, you did something so powerful, Easter 2020. And so if you're watching from home, if you're watching from, from outside on your, on your balcony, wherever it is that you're watching, I'm glad you're here because I think God has something tremendously powerful for us this Easter. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn me to Galatians. Uh, we're going to be looking at three verses in Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 3, 4, and 5. So Galatians chapter 1, 3 through 5. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to, to pull them out and turn to, these, uh, turn to this page, this chapter, Galatians chapter 1, uh, because I think there's something here that Paul does that we might have read before, but not really understood the gravity of these words. You see, Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, he's writing to a church that he's already kind of ministered to, but they're struggling in their understanding of the gospel. In fact, some people have come into the church, whether that's through church growth or just wanting to sow seeds of confusion about the good news about Jesus, they've started to, to forget how amazing the gospel is. They're focusing on this behavior modification instead of heart transformation. And so Paul, he's, he's writing this letter, and he starts his letter in this way. In verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord 
Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. You see, this passage teaches us three things that I think we can bring with us or that we can celebrate or, or uh, just kind of meditate on this Easter. It's what is given because of the gospel. What is given, what it cost, and what a plan. So what is given? You see, Paul tells us that because of Jesus, we are given two things, grace and peace. Now, when we think of grace, there, there's this religious connotation that we bring with us. See, when we sit down to, to have a meal together, we might say, let's say grace. Or when we think of how a professor or how a teacher or how a parent has uh, just kind of been lenient on us, even though we should have deserved a more severe punishment, we say, oh man, they gave me grace. But even with those examples, we often struggle to kind of understand what grace truly is. You see, if you were to do a Google definition, you would find that grace means unmerited favor, which is kind of odd because as somebody who who uh, likes to learn obscure phrases or obscure words, unmerited favor is not something that is commonly said in just our modern day vernacular. You see, unmerited favor essentially means getting something you don't deserve. And so Paul, as he starts to, before he even unpacks the gospel to this church, he says, we are given grace. We are given this, this uh, unmerited favor. We're given a love that we don't deserve. But we're also given peace. But taking those two things and bringing them from what we know in our, in our heads into our hearts can sometimes be difficult. And so there's a story in the Bible that I think illustrates this beautifully. You see, it's found in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, you have in chapter 23, the scene of Jesus as he's on the cross. He's gasping for these last, uh, last few breaths, and next to him are these two thieves. And on one side, there's a thief who's mocking him, who's saying, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Christ? The story is found in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 38. It says, now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I think of this thief who's who's sitting there, who's being crucified for a penalty for what they've done, and one is hurling these insults at, at Jesus, saying, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Savior? Aren't you the one who, can, who has been saying that you can deliver us? Why not save yourself and save us? And it makes me think of what many people are kind of uh, grappling with as they navigate this very uncertain time, where where is God in all of this? Why is God allowing this to happen to our world and to us? Why have 6.6 .6 million people filed for unemployment? Why have thousands of people died from this virus that we don't necessarily know uh, what we can do other than just try our absolute best to treat it that came from a distant land? Why is God letting this happen? And so this thief says, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Savior? Aren't you a God of love? Why won't you save yourself and us. But then the other one does something astonishing. You see, he rebukes 
his partner in crime. Who knows how long this bond has, has gone back. Maybe they grew up from the same neighborhood together, and so they started out in petty crimes together, and they moved on up the ladder into more severe crimes. Who knows? But this other thief in verse 40 of Luke 23 says, But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then after rebuking his fellow thief, he turns to Jesus and he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is Jesus, a man who's gone about preaching that the, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the man, Jesus, who has raised people from the dead, he's healed lepers, he's cast out demons, and yet here he is, nailed on a cross, looking at his biggest moment of defeat. He's conquered. He's not, he's not the victorious king. They put the sign over his head to mock him, and yet here is a thief acknowledging him as the king of the universe. And so Jesus responds and said, Truly I say to you today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Truly, I say to you today, you're going to be with me when I get to heaven and I've made mansions and I've accomplished and, and, uh, the plan of redemption and everything has come to a close. You will be there with me at my table. We will feast together. Jesus offers this thief grace and peace. See, grace is this uh, religious concept when really we kind of already understand grace when we receive something that we don't deserve at all. Maybe it's when you're sitting down with your friend and they have that snack, or maybe it's a family member and they have that snack that is just, oh, whenever you see it or you smell it, it makes your mouth water, right? Maybe it's, it's the last one and you're thinking, oh man, I would love to have that right now. And so you ask and it's theirs and it's not yours, and yet they still give it to you. They don't have to give you that last snack. But they do that because why? There's, there's no obligation to, they just do. In a way, that is grace. You see, Jesus was on the cross bearing our pain, bearing our shame, bearing our sin. Why? He didn't, he didn't need to. He was under no obligation to. But he did it because that's who he is. And so he offers us this grace. But, but the thief had no opportunity to go and change his lifestyle. He couldn't go and, and uh, make his bed and, and shape up and go get a good job, a good honest job, and go and apologize and make things right with the, the individuals that he's wronged. He had no opportunity for that because he's on a cross. He's dealing with the penalty of his crime, and yet he's extended grace. He recognizes that something is taking, uh, taking place, something is happening, and he acknowledges Jesus as the king of the universe. But Jesus doesn't just give us grace. You see, Paul, before he starts to divulge into how the Galatian church has struggled and, and gone astray in their understanding of the gospel, also says that Jesus offers us peace. Now, peace is something that uh, we might think that we understand, or we might think that we even have, but 
uh, sociologists are saying we're living in a more anxious age than ever before. And we're dealing with uh, levels of anxiety that we just shouldn't have to deal with, whether that's because we're constantly plugged into the news, whether that's we're constantly unsure of the economy and the, just the uncertainty of the future, whether or not we're living paycheck to paycheck. We live with this level of anxiety. And pastors are guilty across America of littering their messages with these, these uh, components of a prosperous gospel where if you come to Jesus, your health is going to get better or your finances will get better or your marriage will get better or here's all the benefits that you're going to have. If you receive Jesus, you'll be able to drive that car or you'll be able to get that house or you'll be able to, to get that spouse. When in reality, sometimes God doesn't change our circumstances immediately. Will Jesus help us in our marriage? Absolutely. Will he help us in our finances? Yes. But sometimes it's, it, it takes some time, but in all, even other times, maybe our reality doesn't really change that much. And so what is being talked about when Paul says that we're offered not only grace, but also peace? When I think of peace, I think of uh, a time when I was in college, when I was driving from meeting with a pastor, I was interning in a church, and I was driving back, and I had to make it uh, on time because I was making up a test. I would missed the, t the day that the test was being taken, and so I had to show up. Uh, I had to schedule an appointment, and uh, scheduling an appointment with the professor had been really, really difficult, and so I didn't want to miss this time. But you know, pastors, we can linger and talk and, and talk and talk, and so I'd run over my time. And so now I'm speeding back to campus, and all of a sudden my tire goes out. I had never changed a tire before. I figured I could probably YouTube it, but I don't even know if I have the tools. And so I get out of my car and I run to the back and I pop my trunk and there's no spare tire and there's no car jack. And so now I'm starting to think through, well, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do because I need to make it back to campus. I'm not going to be able to make it back to campus on time. I, I, right now is a crucial time where a lot of my classmates and my friends are even in their classes because it was like maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, and so many people are in class, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And so this level of anxiety started to, to rise up in my heart, but I knew that there was one person I could call. It was my roommate, and I knew that even if he was in class, he would get up and he would leave. And so I called my roommate, and I, I talked to him about what had happened and how I was totally unprepared to change my tire, and he said, I'm on my way. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me to know that my roommate is on his way, that he knows because he's car savvy, he's coming with a car jack, he's going he's gonna to come probably pick me up, who knows, he's, he's probably going to come pick me up, take me to go get a tire, I, I don't know, but he's going to come and he's going to solve it. And so even though I have to sit in my present day circumstance, even though I have to sit there on the side of the road, I know that because somebody who is capable is on their way, I can have peace. And so the thief is still on the cross. He doesn't have an opportunity to show that he's been forgiven. He doesn't have an opportunity to, to go and make uh, right all of the wrongs. And yet Jesus offers him grace by saying, surely I tell you, you will be with me in my kingdom. But he's also offered peace to get through his trial. Sometimes it's not an outward peace, a peace of environment. It's often an inward peace. I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who 
had been a, such a thorn in the side of the Nazi regime. In fact, Hitler hated him so much that when Hitler knew that he was losing the war, he specifically made an order to have Dietrich Bonhoeffer hang in a concentration camp, that the Allied forces are advancing and they're right on the doorstep of being able to liberate the concentration camp that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is in. And so Hitler sends out this this uh, command to have Bonhoeffer hanged, and it, and it makes its way to the concentration camp, and, and Bonhoeffer is made aware that his execution is happening the next day. And the guard goes and gets Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer rises from saying prayer, and he gets up and he meets his end. And those who survived this experience say that Bonhoeffer was hanged, he met his end with such peace that it has stayed with them to this day. He met his end knowing that he had already been given grace and that because of grace he could have an inward peace that nobody else could even comprehend. And so Paul says, as he begins his letter to the Church of Galatia, that we are offered grace and peace. That's what we're given because of Jesus. But what was the cost? You see, there was a, a cost. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Who gave himself, Jesus gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. You see, there was a cost. And in this scene in the Gospels, in John chapter 17, you have Jesus, and he's in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating these drops of blood. He's going through this anguish of taking the sins of the world upon himself, and it's breaking his heart. He actually says that his soul is sorrowful, even unto death. So what is it that is actually the cost of redemption? You see, Jesus wasn't, uh, he didn't die by the nails going into his hands or the side, having his side pierced. No, what broke his heart is the fact that God was no longer glad to be together with him. You see, in Psalm 16, it says that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And there's this uh, neuropsychologist who has defined joy as glad to be together. So Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they had existed from eternity past being glad to be with one another. They had had this union from eternity past, everlasting, of delighting in one another, of giving oneself to, to the other, of playing of just being glad to hang out. Have you ever had a best friend where you could sit and not even communicate? You could watch paint dry, but it would be the best time of your life because that was your best friend and you were just spending time with somebody that you were glad to be with. This is the type of union that the Father and the Son had from eternity past. And now that union is being severed because of sin. Jesus is starting to bear the weight of sin. And so he's starting to recognize that sin is this relational dynamic of, of, I don't want to be with you, God, which causes God to have a frown. It breaks God's heart. And so as Jesus starts to take the sin of the world, he's recognizing that it's giving God a frown. It's giving his Father a frown. And it breaks Jesus' heart. And so the cost is this severance of oneness. That's the cost. God himself, in order to give us grace and peace. 
But it also says, Paul doesn't just leave us there because it says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. There was a cost. It, it cost Jesus himself so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You see, there is a plan. And what a glorious plan it is. After Jesus was crucified, he was laid in a tomb, and on Sabbath, he stayed in the tomb, and the disciples had to go through this grieving process of trying to, to comprehend what they had just seen happen. Their best friend, their rabbi, the one who had maybe played practical jokes on other disciples, or who had uh, you know, maybe just cracked a joke at, at the dinner table, or was quick to help, and, and was healing people, and just somebody who people longed to be around. Their best friend, their rabbi, their savior had just been crucified. And so they're going through the pain and the grief of losing their friend and their rabbi, their savior. But then Sunday comes, and they realize as they go down to the tomb that they find it empty because Jesus has risen. You see, there was this plan set in place before sin ever came into the world where God was going to give himself in case anyone rose up in rebellion. God said, I will have this plan. I have this master plan to show not only that I am a God of love, but also that I am there to be with you. And so Paul, he says that it was the will of God for Jesus to give himself to rescue us from this present evil age. And so there's going to come a time when we're going to see Jesus coming on the clouds of glory with myriads and myriads of angels to take us home with him. We're going to dwell with him for eternity. Maybe we play freeze tag. Maybe it's hide and go seek. Maybe we go rock climbing. Maybe we, we learn how to, how to uh, tweet like birds, right? We know how to, to give the best bird calls. It doesn't matter because we're going to be there with Jesus. And so Paul, before he even dives into the, the main content, the meat of the gospel, as he seeks to kind of counteract some of these faulty conceptions that the Galatian church had learned, he says that we're offered grace and peace, that there was a cost, and it cost Jesus his very life to rescue us from this present evil age. But this was a part of the plan of God. And we know that when Jesus rose, he appeared, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that he appeared to over 500 individuals, but then he eventually ascended on high. And now he's ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, preparing and finishing up the last phases of the plan of redemption so that we can be with him and not have to go through natural disasters, not have to lose loved ones, not have to go through tornadoes, hurricanes, disease, loss of job, loss of life. No more sin. No more sin. There's a plan. There's a plan set in place. And so this Easter, Easter 2020, we have this glorious opportunity. We have this glorious moment to press into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And it's honestly quite simple. You see, the thief had no opportunity to go and change their life or his life. And he was offered grace. And so you too are offered that same grace of just knowing that Jesus looks at you and smiles. That God sees you for who you truly are and yet fully loves you. He knows of your baggage. He knows of of the wrongs that you've committed. He knows all of that. He fully knows you, and yet he fully loves you, and he fully extends to you grace. But he also extends to you peace. 
Isaiah 26 verse 3 says that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is kept on you. And so it's all about having God in mind. It's not this outward piece of circumstance or our reality. It might be. God might bring peace into our environment. And I pray that he brings peace into our homes, especially this weekend. But it's an inner peace. It's a peace in our heart knowing that no matter what comes, Jesus is right there with us to help us meet it head on. Because even though it looked like he was conquered when he was on the cross, and they tried to mock him by saying, Jesus, King of the Jews, over his head. At his lowest point, a thief acknowledged him as king because he was the one who went, and he is, as Paul says in in Hebrews, he's the perfecter of our faith. But that word perfecter is actually better translated as conqueror. He is the conqueror of our faith. He is the one who conquers on our behalf. He's the one who met death, and death has no hold on him. And Easter is this time for us to remind ourselves that it's not about a record because we've been extended grace, that we can have peace knowing that our our record has been dealt away, that Jesus bore that record, that when Jesus sees us, he smiles, he's stoked, he's just glad to be with us. But we also know that there was an infinite cost paid, and that should fill us with this gratitude of just thankfulness. And it's all a part of a plan where ultimately we will one day dwell with him for eternity. And so it's offered to us this weekend to remind ourselves and to center ourselves, not in outward works, not in what we can white knuckle our future to be, because our future will always remain uncertain no matter how many plans we make. But ultimately the one plan we can make that is certain is that we can plan to receive Jesus receive his grace, receive his peace, and that plan will come to fruition when we see him coming in the clouds of glory to take us home, to be with him for eternity. It's difficult sometimes to to let all, everything that we carry with us from this world, to leave it aside and to let Jesus enter into our hearts to transform us and give us this peace. But he promises to do that. He promises. And I know that he is faithful to keep his promises. So I don't know what you're going through. You might be anxious. You might be frustrated. You might be angry. You might be uncertain. You might be depressed. But may this weekend be a weekend when you can remind yourself that someone has gone and accomplished and and defeated the greatest foe, sin, on our behalf. And that he is just ready to embrace us. And that he's finishing this grand plan so that we never have to worry about sin coming into the universe again. I pray that this Easter is a great moment because we have a great opportunity. And so I pray that you would center yourself on Jesus, that you would realize that he loves you now and that his presence would fill your heart. For that is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.